0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: We are planning to be able to put vaccine into arms, uh, and the first week of January is what we're planning for to make sure we are absolutely
2: ready.
3: That is Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about vaccine distribution in BC. Now, the timeline for the overall distribution in Canada is now becoming more clear, and that's thanks to that federal update that we got on Canada's vaccine plan coming out of Ottawa. So joining us for more on this now is Global News Chief Investigative Correspondent Carolyn Jarvis. Good morning, Carolyn. Hey, Simi. So what do we know about how quickly this is now going to be rolled out?
4: Well, it depends which vaccine you're talking about. By all accounts, it looks like Pfizer is going to be the leading candidate for the rollout, and we're expecting it to be rolling out in the first quarter of 2021. Moderna will be very quickly behind. It's also expecting a similar timeline early 2021. But there are four vaccine candidates that are currently undergoing review by Health Canada and awaiting that very crucial approval before we could see them in you know, doctor's offices and clinics and hospitals and the like. Um, so there are a number of vaccine candidates in the works right now. How many is going to be an equally crucial question to win? It's very anticipated that we're going to see very small amounts in the initial first wave, and that will build through the course of the year. So take Moderna, for example. We interviewed uh, its head of international operations and distributions, who I should note is a Canadian. His name is Nicolas Charnay, and he's relocated to Switzerland, where they're manufacturing Moderna's international supply that will um, that will feed into the Canadian system. And they say they're going to produce up to 300 uh, million uh, doses in 2021 but the but right now they only have one production line operating and they're going to build to four production lines so stuff is still in the works suffice to say
3: so how will that work then for Canadians then do you just take what's available and it doesn't matter like is it the Moderna one is it the you know Pfizer one
4: well this is part of what Health Canada's review is about and what the National Advisory Committee on Immunization will give them a bit of guidance on as well. Whether there are intricacies between the different vaccines, for example, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine being mRNA, this new technology type of vaccine, and whether they're better suited to different groups or different types of people than others. Keep in mind, these vaccines in their phase 3 trials of 30,000 some odd people have each been tried on a, a wide array of people from varying ages and varying uh, demographic backgrounds so there could be guidance on whether they're best suited we haven't heard any of that granular detail yet about whether one is better for you than another all we're hearing right now is that uh, you know Pfizer's looking first and that mm-hmm. there are no serious safety flags but one of the big pieces of this is that after a vaccine is deployed for use in the public, they will have what's called post-market surveillance. So they will continue to monitor it to see if there are any reports of adverse effects.
3: So are they just going to be responsible then, the federal government, for just getting it to different provinces and territories and then the provinces will decide who gets it first?
4: Yeah, well, uh, healthcare is always a provincial division, uh, jurisdiction, I should say. And so it is going to be up to the province to decide who's going to get it. Uh, you know, the feds can give them guidance, but healthcare is up to the provinces. So uh, there will be a team of people in BC who are going to decide who's going to get it as a priority group. The mechanism of figuring out Um, If I'm identified as a priority person, how then do I get to the front of the queue? That hasn't been worked out yet. You just announced the head of the the task force in BC last week. So these sort of details are being ironed out. I mean, will you get a letter? Will it be an email? Will you have an ID card to say, I'm quote high risk or I'm a healthcare worker? If you work in a hospital, will the vaccine be deployed at your place of work? These are the sort of details that we may not be thinking of initially, but will require a lot of forethought to get this deployed effectively.
3: Sure All right, Carolyn, thank you for explaining it to us this morning.
0: My pleasure, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi.
3: You know, at this time of year, naturally, we think about those who don't have the means, the ability to, you know, share in the holiday spirit or perhaps they don't, you know, they, they need some gifts. They need a little extra help. And so we think about that. And we try to do the best we can to help all those people. But there are also those other ones out there who will take advantage of that feeling of charitable giving that goes on. There's a scam on the crowdfunding website GoFundMe that got a couple of people in Victoria last month. And you know what? There are more email charity scams that happen every day. They even come door to door. That's what happened to me. I've been so many people have come door to door this week. And I'm just like, what is what is going on? You shouldn't even be knocking on people's doors during this time. Uh, And no clipboard, no cards, no nothing to even really tell you what it is that they are raising money for. So how do you separate the real from the fake? Joining us now to help out with that is BCSI Investigations President Denny Gagnon. Good morning, Denny.
5: Morning, Simi. How are you?
3: I am good. Thank you. So are we just kind of ripe at this time of year because we're feeling generous?
5: Absolutely. Um, especially with the, um, you know, the COVID-19 situation. So the online approach has is, is, is been really increasing on a daily basis. And when we get to an event like Christmas coming and so on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to increase really quickly.
3: So what do you think is the most popular thing this year? Is it phone scams, email scams? What's going on?
5: I think the email would take uh, number one in regards to because the online situation is so um, prominent um you know going door to door and I'm surprised you got people coming to your door um you know i've been- experienced that for quite a while that they were uh, you know you were asking for donation at your home, but mostly what we see right now at the moment is online and basically um, you know, people pressuring you. you know, there's all kinds of, of, of ways that they're approaching uh, you in, online. I mean, they will contact you and say you've donated in the past and you would like to check your information. That's one of the common ones where they'll say, you donated to a charity, so would you please give us again and we need to confirm your credit card number. That's a, that's a common one. Um, so if you don't recall making that donation, it's a, it's a red flag. Also making payment by cash gift cards, a wire transfer, but it all comes down to due diligence, right? I mean, for example, you look at your CKNW Kids Fund. It's been renowned. It's been many, many years. It's established. So you start doing your research online saying, is this charity a charity that seems legitimate or not? So I, in my case, I do a fair amount of due diligence and before I will give anything. I try to stay with the same um, charities on a regular right. basis. Um, you know, I, I know the charity that I'm giving to, you want to you, you want to know the cause you want to support and pay attention again to the website in regards to the, um, the, the, the you know the, the name of the website and if there is any typos in it and so on which is very 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 common the header often has a, as, uh, a spelling error in it that's a red flag as well but also Canada the Canadian government has a list of charities that are registered and it's on their website and you can also start there saying this is this is this um, a charity registered with the government. So you have to become an informed donor, such as anything else you're doing these days because of the online permanence. And, you know, platforms like GoFundMe are great. I mean, they do a fantastic job. But when the money goes to a fraudulent individual or a cause, this is where the problem starts. And then they start losing credibility. Right.
3: So did you say you had people coming to your door? Because I've had three people in the last five days come to my door.
5: No, I've not. What I said is that I was surprised that people are coming to your door, especially with the event of COVID-19 and social distancing and so on. And I, I, I'm shocked. And if, if they're not wearing any, any kind of... Uh, I get them in my office once in a while and, they, you know, they'll wear a tag or they'll wear some kind of notification. And really they're the same people coming year after year. So I, we know those people. But somebody is coming to your door on the premise that, you know, they are collecting money for whatever cause should be, uh, in my view... a a red flag.
3: Yeah, that's what I thought too. And this one person that I had just yesterday was really persistent. Like I had a dog barking, you know, so I didn't want to open the door the whole way. It was dinner time. It was like all those things that make you want to go, I I really can't do this right now. Uh, And no like identification of where she was from or what she was raising money for. And I thought, boy, is it the scammers are really getting pushy out there.
5: And I think the solution on that is not to give. <laughs> so I mean, yes. you look at the, you look at the individual, and say, I'm sorry, you know, I don't create a confrontation. But I'm not prepared to give because I don't know who you are, and I don't know who you're representing. But like I said, the online is number one at this point because of COVID-19. There is ways to check for it, you know, on the Canada website in regards to are they registered? Do your due diligence like anything else these days when you're buying online and buying anything. No, you're donating. You're not buying, but you're donating. So due diligence is number one.
3: Okay. And what about the phone scams, though? Because those are tough, too, because now, you know, phone numbers can be spoofed.
5: Yeah, phone scams are, are even, you know, they're, they're, they're really hot right now. I mean, you, I'm sure you, you probably have gotten some calls from the CRA saying that you will be arrested if you don't pay some kind of ransom. I mean, those are not really charities, but they are pressuring you to send money or give money. And really, is another way that they're going after, after it right now, which is quite creative, is asking for bitcoins. And you know, if, if <laughs> so, they asking oh, you to on. do your, your People fall your for pay- that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> so, you know, they will ask you, you to uh, do a payment in bitcoins, and that's becoming more and more common. They will have you walk to one of those stations, one of those ATMs that take 10 t- bitcoins, and those are extremely hard to track. And as you know, bitcoins are white quite a bit at the moment, uh, so it, it could be a substantial loss.
3: Right, okay, so best just to play it safe. Like, do you think just stick to known charities? And, like you said, if you've donated in years past, then stick to those ones.
5: I generally do a hybrid. You know, I do know charities I've done given to in the past. And then when possible, when safe, and that's the key question, you know, with the mask and whatever, I do know some st- street people, individuals on the street that I like to give face-to-face. But that's becoming a little bit more difficult now because of COVID. So I do a hybrid of online, which the known charities that mm-hmm. I've given over the years. And also for my individuals that I know, a few on the streets, I like to give them face-to-face. This year, we're not going to do our care package, which we do with our firm every year because we can't do that. But, you know, it's nice to, that face-to-face contact, when possible and safe, <laughs> I have to qualify that right. is, is a way that I do it. So hybrid works well for me. So, and that's what I would suggest is do your due diligence.
3: All right, Denny, thank you so much.
5: You're very welcome. Have a great day. You too.
3: Denny Gagnon, president at BCSI Investigations, talking about charity scams at this time of year. Now, I thought that was unusual that I had so many people, three of them, in a period of five days come to my door for three different, um, you know, uh, raising money organizations. But what about you? Have you seen that happening in your neighborhood? Because it surprised me, two of them not even wearing masks. Couldn't believe it.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
3: We've got some Friday feel-good stories for you, and Nikki
6: Reitmeyer's got them for us. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, I have a couple stories for you of Samaritans, some good Samaritans who've done good things around our province that I thought we should celebrate on a Friday. Sure, let's do it. Perfect. So this first story, this comes to us from the Kootenays, and it is of um, a civilian who did an incredible deed while helping a local police officer arrest a suspect. So the story goes like this. There was a robbery in the town of Bridesville, and the police constable who tracked down the suspect with the help of this civilian, he told the local newspaper, the Boundary Creek Times, he said, quote, if you're going to do a story on this, then the number one thing that I want people to know is that the civilian was Amazing. So what did this guy do? Well, on December 1st, the alleged robbery occurs. The officer, along with a 32-year-old man, they chase after this suspect and they follow him down a ravine. So they follow him for about two hours. And at some points, they're waist deep in freezing cold river water. Now, eventually, because it is so cold outside, yeah, the suspect, he gives up because he's actually developing hypothermia. The police officer said there was no fight left in him. They were all exhausted. But the officer, being the guy that he is, doesn't even handcuff the suspect because, of course, the suspect is now suffering from hypothermia. He builds him a fire. He holds on to him to try to raise his core temperature back up again. Then the civilian hikes out of the ravine to go get dry socks for the officer, who said that his boots were like frozen bricks at this point. They ended up all being airlifted by helicopter out of the ravine. They sent the suspect out first even, and he was treated in hospital for hypothermia and exposure. 45 minutes later, the police officer went out and remarkably, he said he's okay. The civilian, totally okay as well. You know, they were able to to hack the cold and they were able to nap their suspect together. And just an incredible story. And the police officer said he was so impressed by this civilian who helped him tracked down the suspect through the freezing cold woods or th- freezing cold water and stayed with him till the end, even hiked out to get him socks and, and bring him some warm clothes again.
3: Honestly. And the 47 year old suspect in all of this should thank the police officer and the, uh, yeah. the civilian who helped out because if he'd gotten hypothermia and if police had given up the chase, right, which sometimes happens, they just decided it's not worth it. We're going to stop. He would have been stuck out there with
6: hypothermia and something really bad could have happened. Yeah, you know, I was thinking the same thing too, you know, at first in my mind, I pictured this being like an old Wild West movie where, you know, they track down the suspect and then when, the, <laughs> when they catch him, they tie him to a tree, you know, yeah, <laughs> no. Uh, the, but the other side of this, like you said, was, you know, if they drove the suspect deep enough into the woods and then they gave up the chase – well, the guy could have gotten lost out there or if he was injured because he was running, well, who knows what could have happened. So, you know, the guy should be very grateful that the officer, when he did catch up to the guy, you know, he didn't handcuff him, he built a fire to keep the both of them warm. He held on to the suspect to raise his core temperature again and then obviously in the end, helped the suspect get airlifted to hospital where he was treated for exposure and hypothermia. That is so nice. Okay, so that's one good story. Yeah. the other good story, it's a little bit closer to home. So in this story, a guy named Kevin McAlpin told the Surrey Now leader that he was walking along Zero Avenue between 170th and 171st with his wife and his baby when he sees this small piece of metal in the road. So he's about to kick it off the road because he's thinking to himself, well, this piece of metal could puncture someone's tire. And just as he's about to kick it, He looks down and he sees that it's actually a misshapen gold men's wedding band. Oh, So the ring really does look like it's been squashed. It's probably been driven over. It's kind of more of an oval shape now. But he picked it up anyways and he saw that there's an inscription on the inside of the ring. So it's the names Jack and Wilma. And then there's a date on it as well from the year 1969. So it's a really old ring. And he's been trying to track down the rightful owner of the ring. He thinks that someone may have dropped it while they were down at Peace Arch Park. So he's our good Samaritan because he's been putting so much effort into helping someone get their wedding ring back again. He posted it on Facebook. He's been contacting people who specialize in hunting down lost wedding rings. And he gave his number to the Surrey Now leader. So you can check their website today for the article, if you think that you know who the ring belongs to, there's a full date that's written on the wedding ring, not just 1969. So you have to tell him those details in order to clarify that the ring is in fact yours.
3: Oh, so somebody would know, I mean, if you're missing a wedding ring, you would know, right, that this is this is potentially yours. And if you were in the area, let's hope we can reunite that because it's, it's hard to lose something like that.
6: Have you ever mis- misplaced your wedding ring temporarily no. before?
3: What happened with mine was, and I don't, I don't wear one anymore because, um, I, for a time, for a couple of years there, I was hosting a cooking show. And so I was always having to take it off during that show because I was washing my hands, I was cooking, I was, you know, helping out the chefs. And it just got to the point where I was afraid that I was going to leave it at work, lose it, whatever the case may be. So I I took it off um, and never ended up putting it um, back on. My husband, though, never takes off his ring because it saved his finger. So (laughs) he he wears his because he also has one of those um, heavy big gold bands and he was on a work site one time and somebody being sloppy stepped on a nail gun. And so he was bending down at that moment to pick something up and somebody stepped on a nail gun, fired a nail in his direction hit the wedding ring, Nikki, (gasps) hit the wedding ring. And so the ring, we had to get it cut off because it had turned into a square at that point. Uh, But it saved his finger essentially because otherwise the nail would have gone through there. So he, you know, we got it cut off so that, you know, he wasn't a square anymore. And then we had it fixed. And so he wears it all the time because now he considers it a good luck omen. Not that that being married to me wasn't enough of good luck already, (laughs) but he now considers the ring to be a good luck omen. (laughs) Geez,
6: <laughs> what an incredible story, though.
3: I know, right? So if he, we were, he wears it. He would re- definitely recognize it um, if it went missing, because that to him is like, "Good luck, gotta wear that ring." And
6: I'm sure lots of people are attached to their rings that way, right? Yeah, you know, one time I I uh, permanently misplaced my wedding ring when I got a divorce. <laughs> it's a joke, Simmy. Come on. <laughs> had to stop and think about that for a second because I was
3: like Nikki wears a wedding ring good one thank you for that Nikki that's our Nikki
0: Reitmeyer this is mornings with Simi
3: You've been hearing in the news this morning about this new poll that came out from Ipsos Public Affairs asking Canadians how they feel about the vaccine rollout plan. And it shows that Canadians are worried that the vaccine won't come out quickly enough to stop this surge that we are seeing in new cases. So joining us now to talk more about the poll is Sebastian Delaire, who's the Ipsos Public Affairs General Manager in Quebec. Sebastian, thank you so much for being here.
7: My pleasure. Good morning.
3: Good morning. OK, so what did you find most interesting about this? How are Canadians feeling about a vaccine?
7: Well, what is interesting is, is, is we have this combination of, you know, fairly high degree of satisfaction with about two thirds of Canadians saying they're satisfied with the way the government has handled the vaccine situation up to now. Yet, as you just mentioned, when we ask them if they are worried about the speed at which it's it's happening, whether we'll be able to beat uh, COVID fast enough to prevent further uh, deaths, uh, they are very concerned. So the government is getting the benefit of the doubt, but expectations for the future are very, very high.
3: What do they feel, though, about the timeline? Like, do they feel like, OK, we're doing the best we can? Do they think we could be moving sooner?
7: <laughs> Again, both. <laughs> what, what they're saying is they they understand that the the government so far has done uh, the best it could with regards to the the, the situation. Sixty three percent agree that it's the, the government did the best it could. However, seventy nine percent say more should be done to get access to the vaccine faster. Mm -hmm. And another 74% are saying this could be too slow to really make a big difference.
3: Really? Um, Did that change depending on what province you were asking the questions in?
7: Yes, we we do see regional differences that mostly align with uh, political preferences in provinces. So if we look at Alberta and the prairies, the government doesn't get as much of a benefit of the doubt, but still, uh, relatively speaking, gets a passing grade for for its efforts, but the worries and the expectations are stronger in areas where satisfaction is not as high as well. Uh, but it but it goes along uh, what we know of of support for uh, the Liberal government across Canada. So it it pretty much goes in tandem with it.
3: Right. So, And what are we learning about pandemics? Because this is new for people, for the most part, right, on this size and this scale. Uh, what are people saying about that?
7: Well, it's, it's quasi-unanimous. Canadians are saying we need to start planning now for the future in terms of PPPs production facilities for vaccines, doing everything we can to be better prepared for the next time we end up in this situation. It's 93% who say we need to be better prepared. So in surveys, you rarely see numbers like this.
3: No kidding. So it sounds like Canadians, Sebastian, are a bit forgiving because everybody seems to be scrambling and doing the best that they can. But we Mm -hmm. also want to be prepared for next time.
7: Exactly. I think what we're seeing is that uh, generally the population is reasonable, but they expect things to improve. And uh, we'll see how things evolve over the next few months. But the government definitely has uh, its work cut out in in, in managing this situation, especially as we see other countries start to roll out the vaccine sooner. Uh, We'll see how public opinion evolves.
3: We will see that. All right. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Sebastian Delaire, Ipsos Public Affairs Quebec General Manager, talking about their poll out this morning showing that 66% of Canadians say they're satisfied with the federal government's approach to getting its hands on a vaccine, although 79% still think that we could be doing more to get it even sooner, and 74% of People who responded to this say they're worried that the public distribution of a vaccine uh, won't come fast enough to stop a greater, wider spread of COVID-19. So as Sebastian pointed out there, Canadians are worried about everything, it sounds like, at this point.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
3: What is going on in Revelstoke these days? And we don't mean that in a good way because there have been some odd stories coming out of Revelstoke, some bad stories coming out this week. There was the one about the family from Revelstoke that made headlines because it sounded from an ad that they had placed that they were actively seeking out someone to infect them with COVID-19 as though COVID-19 were chicken pox or something. And then you also had the premier speaking out about an outbreak occurring in the Revelstoke community that was because of recreational travel. All this must be incredibly frustrating for the mayor of Revelstoke, Gary Saltz, who joins us now to talk about it. Good morning and thank you for joining us.
2: Good morning, Timmy. How are you?
3: I am good, thank you. More importantly, how are you? It's been a
2: tough week. It's been a very tough week. It's uh, been an emotional week and we're here trying to keep people safe.
3: How did you react when you first saw the story about the ad that that family had placed from the Revelstoke area?
2: Well, I was I was actually uh, very upset about it and uh, pretty much in belief or disbelief of uh, of this sort of thing even uh, coming to light. But it it, it goes to the uh, that herd mentality. If we all get infected, we're going to have the uh, the antivirons in our in our system, and we're able to uh, right. move forward.
3: What kind of reaction has there been among people that you've spoken to in Revelstoke about that?
2: Um, they're just, you know, they, in disbelief. You, you wonder, is this factual? Is it not factual? Is it, uh, is it, uh, people even thinking that this this could happen? And and I don't think there are any words to be quite honest. And-
3: that's true. Um, what have you seen, Marisolts, in terms of the community's approach to COVID 19, right? Because you know there's been the outbreak as well because of recreational travel. Have people been good or are they not paying attention? Like, what's it been like in Revelstoke?
2: Well, they haven't been paying attention. I guess we've become complacent over the summer. It um, you know, started out extremely well in, uh, in March when we ordered the community closed. Everybody abided by the rules. And, and, uh, you know, somewhere along the line, things got a little loose, you, you end up with new people coming to the community for work in the, in the recreation sector, but also uh, people living in, in group settings. And, uh, and through those sorts of things, and through social gatherings is how this thing is spread. Some of this has definitely come from recreational travel, we know that. Um, but what we don't know is, is some of it uh, come because people have gone out of the community who, people who live here, gone out of the community and then come back? Um, or is it just uh, just a small group of people that have traveled um, we're thinking it's now because people have not followed precautions here in the community and uh, not everybody is buying into the uh, mask thing. Uh, as of a week ago, you could walk down the street and not many people were wearing masks and um, a lot of businesses, people weren't wearing masks once it was uh, definitely mandated and, and we knew the numbers were going up. Everyone's wearing a mask. However, there's still, you know, a few people who will resist on.
3: Right. So you feel that things are getting better than in that area?
2: Yeah, I think people are, you know, they're concerned, they're concerned for their health, they're concerned for their welfare. And and I go back to, you know, the the economic impact, the education impact, the employment impact, everything's impacted if we're uh, sick. But if we don't have our health, none of these things matter.
3: So do you feel that, okay, perhaps you've turned a corner then, and it sounds like the mask mandate helped in Revelstoke.
2: I believe so. I think, uh, you know, every business should be doing this. Every community member should be following this. Uh, Most people wearing their masks, even when they're outside walking the streets of Revelstoke. So I think that's uh, that's helping on them. What I mean that I mean that they're wearing masks when they're in their downtown core. When people are out for their for their morning walk and that sort of thing, and they're away from others, of course they're uh, they're breathing the air without a mask on, and that's uh, totally fine.
3: It must be a frustrating position for you to be in, though, to have to try to tell people. Like, it's not fun to being that that person, right, who has to tell everybody to cut it out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you you've just heard what uh, Mayor, uh, Premier Pallister is going through in, uh, in Manitoba. You look at it and say, I, I almost feel the same way. It's like, come on, people. But it's, it's up to everybody, every individual in the community to follow suit and to, uh, to put in the protocols and, and follow those actions. And if we do that, then we're actually going to be able to uh, nip this virus in the butt and let's, uh, let's move on.
3: Let's do that. All right. Thank you so much for your time. And listen, best of luck.
2: Thank you. Take care. You too.
3: That's Gary Saltz, the mayor of Revelstoke. Yes, been a rough week there, uh, starting with those stories about the family that was looking for someone to actively infect them with COVID-19, treating it like, yeah, it was chickenpox or something like that. It is not. It affects every single person differently. uh, And it is far, far, far more deadly than chickenpox. And then you've got the outbreak that happened there. So it hasn't been a good week and you could tell it's tough. And I'm surprised to hear the mayor say that really up until a week ago, you didn't see a lot of people wearing masks. So certainly the mask mandate has helped in communities like Revelstoke. Now, if you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
3: So what the heck has been going on with TransLink this week? We still haven't been getting a whole lot of information from the Transit Authority about what appears to be at this point a pretty big cyber attack So we're on day three at this point without knowing a whole lot. And we know that people have been, you know, compromised in terms of their information. We know something has happened. We know that somebody is trying to hold them hostage for some money. But how much of your information has actually been compromised? Well, to talk more about all of this, we're joined by founder and chief strategist at Cyber SC Dominic Vogel. Hi, Dominic. Hey, Simi. Okay, let's talk about this attack. So were you surprised to hear that something as big as TransLink could have this kind of cyber attack?
8: Uh, I'm certainly not surprised. We're, I mean, we're seeing this more and more, especially during uh, COVID, even, even transit authorities right across the world, even in, in North America, we're, we're seeing this. We've seen this in Sacramento, San Francisco. So, I mean, it was only a matter of time before we saw that here as well.
3: How do these things generally go?
8: Uh, well, I mean, the, the, the type of ransomware which it appears now that, that TransLink was, was hit with seems to be the, this new popular, you know, quote-unquote, strain of, of ransomware, which is hitting a lot of larger organizations. And, um, you know, in terms of how it got into TransLink, it's still anyone's guess. We're still, I'm still very hopeful that TransLink does a very thorough investigation, is very transparent in terms of what happened. Uh, but for right now, it, it could have come in many, many ways. The email, someone being uh, a fooled by clicking on something, uh, we just don't know at this point.
3: Okay, and so what are the options available? Like, if you were to advise a company, like, what do you do when you get one of these attacks?
8: Well, I mean, the, the, the first thing is really understanding scope, you know, in terms of what systems were actually impacted, um, you know, and, and in terms of was, the, was data compromised? Was data stolen from, from, from TransLink? I think what's going to be really interesting over the next day or so is to really uh, identify what data, if any, was stolen from TransLink. Uh, I think it's very unlikely that it was any uh, sensitive information for, you know, uh, for riders and for people who use TransLink. Most of that, the uh, payment information is completely separate third-party systems, which sounds like that wasn't effective. Uh, But there could be some, uh, lack of a better term, transient uh, secrets or employee information that could be compromised. And that's likely what they're trying to deal with right now is whether or not that data was stolen.
3: Right. And is it PR-wise then, Dominic? What's the best way to approach this then? Do you just fess up and say, yeah, hey, this is what we're dealing with right now, Uh, but because it doesn't seem like they've done that, they're just trying to keep it on the down low?
8: Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, from a PR perspective, uh, I, I would certainly like to see uh, some greater transparency in terms of at least factually what they know and what they don't know. Uh, uh, at least what we've seen over the course of the past 20 years, there being enough data breaches where we've seen good PR, bad PR, and ugly PR. I wouldn't quite put TransLink in the ugly PR camp just yet. I would put them in the bad or could be better uh, uh, PR. Uh, I, I think being uh, hiding behind vague statements, especially when you're a public entity like TransLink, The public does um, deserve to have as much transparency as Translip is able to provide. And I think they're missing the the mark there.
3: How common, Dominic, do you think these kinds of ransomware attacks are?
8: Oh, they're becoming increasingly more uh, common, uh, Simi. Even when you look with uh, even smaller organizations, most small and mid-sized organizations across Canada have been hit by ransomware to some uh, degree or another over the past uh, uh, 18 to 24 months. And small organizations that don't have the same uh, resources like a company like Translink does, they can be absolutely crippled and can uh, often go out of business. So we're, we're seeing this affecting all organizations, all shapes and sizes, from the largest organizations to the smallest organizations. So, I mean, ransomware is very much a clear and present danger for, for every, every business, public sector or private.
3: So how do you protect yourself from that?
8: Uh, Good question. (laughs) Uh, I think one of the key pieces is is, uh, not so much necessarily at the technical level, but at the awareness level with with executives and with business owners. There's still far too many uh, executives and business owners uh, who do not uh, invest enough when it comes to cybersecurity and cyber resilience an organization. We have to understand that uh, we live in, a, in an age of a digital economy and thanks to COVID, uh, organizations are increasingly more digitized and virtualized. So, and what comes with that is increased cyber risk. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, most executives don't invest uh, uh, in cyber resilience until it's too late or after the fact. So, I think this is a good call to action and a good reminder for everyone that every organization is susceptible and that exactly right. is worldwide need to invest in it
3: so like don't roll your eyes and be like oh TransLink again you should be asking <laughs> yourself how could this could happen at your company
8: exactly don't don't say the oh it won't happen to us or we're, we're too small of an organization or a company or we don't have anything cyber criminals would want so we're dealing with professionals. cyber crime is a professional game uh and if we keep being amateurs we're just going to keep getting owned day after day
3: all right dominic thank you for that
8: Thanks, Jimmy. Have a good one.
3: You too. That's Dominic Vogel, founder and chief strategist of CyberSC, talking about this ransomware attack that has apparently hit TransLink. Uh, Not a lot of information. Day three, right? Not a lot of information, even though customers have definitely been inconvenienced in terms of how you can pay and what's going on. Uh, But they've said they're not going to pay uh, from this ransomware attack. So what are the repercussions of that? But interesting point that it doesn't matter how small your company is or how big your company is. You need to be thinking about how to protect yourself and what your approach is going to be if you are also hit with a
0: ransomware attack. This is Mornings with Simi.
7: You give a criminal entity an open door, a foothold. They will entrench, and they're like moss on a rock. They will grow. They will prosper.
3: That's a man named Wayne Holland. He is the former commanding officer of a BC anti-illegal gaming unit. He was speaking this week at the Cullen Commission, which is looking into money laundering in our province. So let's talk about what else we learned this week. Joining us now is Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist. Hi, Sam. Hi, Simi. Boy, every week, right? There's more interesting testimony from the Cullen Commission. What did what struck
9: you this week that you heard? Well, this week it was all about that anti-illegal gaming unit and uh, the really uh, hard-to-understand decision of why it was disbanded in 2009. So two witnesses are really two sources of evidence looking at it uh, mr holland as you said and before that we we heard about those secret tapes made be- between fred pinnick who was the previous commander of that unit and cash heed who in 2009 was the solicitor general these were secretly recorded conversations in 2018 where uh mr pinnick and mr heed we now know talked again about their perception that uh Rich Coleman, who was the minister responsible, they believe turned a blind eye to casino crime and disbanded that unit for some reason. Uh, both men had very strong words for the RCMP leaders. They they called them uh, mafia-like operators. In their opinion, we don't know what they mean, but what uh, again, uh, very strong words. And mm-hmm. the RCMP says this is just scur- this is uh, gossip between two men. But what we can judge from these recordings which Commissioner Cullen released in part because he says they support Fred Pinnock's evidence partly. Essentially, uh, what they're saying is the unit was disbanded for bad reasons. They believe uh, Minister Coleman at the time had some sort of control over RCMP leaders, and that's why the RCMP really uh, uh, neglected to do their job, which is to police serious crime. And so... uh, once that evidence was established uh, again uh, as you said we move on to mr holland who took over the unit again really shocking testimony he says he fully expected in late 2008 to have the unit size doubled because he put forward a threat assessment that said international organized crime local organized crime were running wild in casinos there were murders kidnappings uh prostitution human trafficking all linked to bc casinos So he thought that uh, B.C.'s government would support his unit growing. The opposite happened. It was disbanded, and uh, the Commission Council asked him who was responsible. He said, to this day, his RCMP leaders have never told him who made the decision. He has to believe it was Minister Coleman, because he was told in a meeting, Minister Coleman was aware of that threat assessment, that extremely severe threat assessment.
3: Boy, Sam, it's just like more and more damning testimony comes out of this right? Just, I. you think that somebody at some point would say, no, no, that's not what it was like. Every week, it's, yeah, that's exactly what we thought it
9: was. Well, you're right. The, the evidence is mounting. We're hearing from so many sources now that say very serious reports were put forward to BC's government. At the end of the day, BC's government had the call whether this unit continued or not. And now we've heard a Uh, Mounties say that they believe BC was set back 10 years or more because the unit, when that unit was taken out, there literally was no one that could combat those gangsters in the casinos because the gaming enforcement branch, they they already knew. They did not have the jurisdiction to go up against people carrying guns and doing serious money laundering. There literally was no one watching these centers of crime in the province. We know that now. That's crazy.
3: So, Sam, we keep hearing these stories, right? Everything is getting confirmed. But when do we hear from the people who are actually in charge and can explain to us why these
9: decisions were made? Well, that's key. And uh, it's important that we say that uh, Rich Coleman has said through his lawyer, he plans to have his day in the inquiry. We already know that he strongly denies allegations that he or his government turned a blind eye to casino crime. We're going to hear from him, and that'll be very important uh, to hear his side. Uh, names that have been raised already. Peter German, the Mountie that filed the, the dirty money report uh, on these secret tapes. Uh, Cash Heed said, why would you uh, he said Peter German was one of the Mounties that that probably could have stuck up for this illegal gaming unit back in 2009. So he was in some way responsible, according to Mr. Heed. Uh, how can you have him doing the report on illegal yeah. money laundering? And so I'm sure that uh, I'm sure the Commission will want to hear from Peter German. We've heard his name coming a lot, up a lot. Other senior Mounties, because really the core of this this allegation is we have elite uh, officials in BC and elite police officials somehow responsible for for a lack of policing and you know i'm sure they will have answers we we know they have lawyers that will be speaking for them as well
3: and just a reminder here sam as well where does this all lead us like what is what is the end result going to be for the cullen commission with whatever it finds
9: well, the mandate is, again, to, to test whether corruption allowed uh, dirty money to flow in B.C. In casinos and broadly B.C.'s economy. And furthermore, you know, are things like this fentanyl overdose crisis, uh, runaway housing prices tied to crime and potentially corruption. So what does that mean? Will people, people always ask, uh, this is serious stuff we're hearing. Will people go to jail? That It doesn't seem like this commission will, will lead to that type mm-hmm. of outcome, but what it will lead to is... Likely, uh, the commissioner will uh, will will come out and say, "Look, that the RCMP has some serious problems. Uh, law firms, you know, uh, are are able to run money from outside of the country into Canada without adequate oversight." These, I'm just saying, these are some of the rulings that he could make in terms of laws. But Simi, you know, I have to say the people, the public, they want some accountability here. So it's potential that some findings could lead to further investigations that may even involve, you know, criminal investigations. That seems an outside possibility, but it is there.
3: All right, Sam, thank you once again for the update. Thanks, Simi. Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist, has been following along, of course, very closely with what's going on in the Cullen Commission. Another week of some eye-opening testimony there, this time from Wayne Holland, who was the former commanding officer of a BC RCMP anti-illegal gaming unit. A unit that everybody pointed to is saying, oh, look, we have this unit. And then it was not expanded, and then it was disbanded, and there have still been no... Good explanations or no explanation at all about why any of that happened. And meanwhile, you had money laundering running rampant in
0: casinos. This is Mornings with Simi.
8: When we look at the job posting numbers and employer hiring appetite, it seems like in many areas of the economy, employers are just saying, you know what, let's focus on 2021.
3: We're talking about the November Labour Force Survey, which was just released this morning. And there is some good news in there. I mean, we are seeing the unemployment rate in Canada continuing to fall. But let's dig a little deeper into it, get some insights and look at what's happening here in BC. So joining us now is Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Vice President at the Business Council of BC. Ken, thank you for being back with us.
10: You're very welcome,
3: Sydney. So what did you like in these numbers this morning?
10: Well, um, I like a fair bit of positive news. Again, um, an increase of twenty-four thousand jobs in in uh, November. Sorry, and that, that's a good gain in normal times, and it's a good gain for now. A little bit of a slowing from October. But uh, one thing in particular that, that stood out for me is there was a, a hefty jump in full-time employment. And this has been an area of weakness in this whole job recovery process. So finally, we saw some traction in that full-time category that was offset by a little bit of a decline in part-time. But, uh, but that is good news because that really has been a weak spot in the recovery story so far.
3: Okay. Were there things that stood out for you in B.C.?
10: Yes, I'm talking BC now. Yeah,
3: so this is okay. good news
10: for BC. Yep, and so the uh, the twenty four thousand gain is is specific to BC, and this the pickup in full time job numbers also specific to BC. Uh, the same story played out at the national level as well, but uh, BC fared relatively well in this report compared to, to the other provinces. There was some hmm. slowing in other spots of Canada.
3: That's interesting. And I did notice you mentioned, like, full-time jobs, right, versus part-time, which is a bit surprising when you consider you're thinking about, you know, the holiday shopping season in retail, which is usually part-time work.
10: It it, it is. It is. But again, context is important here because... The, uh, you know, up to this month, the, the gain in full time employment lagged well behind part time. Part time employment actually recovered to its pre COVID or pre recession levels, uh, February levels, uh, a month or two ago. And so it has been quite strong. Uh, the lagging component of the job market has been this full time. So I think this reflects the reality that, that employers probably took people back onto the payrolls on a part time basis. But as things have become more certain and more stable, they're probably transitioning on you know, many of those employees to to full-time work.
3: Right. So that would be a good sign then. That would mean it that is- there is business out there, that it seems like it is kind of picking up or holding steady at least. Yeah.
10: You know, this this whole last five months of, of the labor market situation here in the province has been relatively good news. And, and again, context is important. Yeah, there's Definitely weak spots: uh, food and accommodation, and the tourism sector, of course. But uh, overall, the, the recovery has been much quicker than I anticipated, and we are now down um, at just uh, you know thirty seven thousand jobs or forty thousand jobs from where we were in February. That's a remarkable re- recovery, considering we were down four hundred thousand at the low point. Uh, so, so yeah, generally good news to me.
3: That's amazing when you put it that way, though, Ken. <laughs> that we're down forty thousand jobs from where we were, you know, back in March. Essentially, forty thousand is a gap that it sounds like a province like BC could close.
10: Oh, it, it, you know, one more one more month of a similar job performance, and we will be back to where we were uh, in in February. And again, this is something uh, I did not anticipate. Part of the reason for this. It's because the, uh, the resource sector has been very strong. So we've seen employment gains in forestry, mining, uh, and other parts of the resource sector and related manufacturing. But we've also seen really, really robust employment growth in professional, scientific, and, and technical service services, which captures um, right. computer services and, and of course, a whole host of professional services, really strong employment growth there, and that has helped huh. lift the overall job numbers.
3: So it sounds like BC's diversified economy is really paying off here.
10: I, you know, what I've been saying for years, BC it benefits from being a diversified economy, and I think that comment is entirely appropriate in this context. I, I am always. Uh, wary and concerned for tourism, yes. uh, you know, the large entertainment venues, because th- there is a lot of pain in those segments and sectors as well. But when you get outside of those areas, people working with computers and, and, and things rather than face to face human interactions, uh, the, the employment picture is, is pretty good, <laughs> all things considered.
3: No kidding. We'll take that for the weekend then. Ken, thank you. You're
10: very welcome
3: Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Vice President of the Business Council of BC. So yes, some positive news there for BC in the numbers. Not as positive all the way across the country, but you know what? We'll take that for BC and hopefully be able to close the gap with those 40,000 still missing jobs in the
0: months ahead. This is Mornings with Simi.
10: In some areas of the province, uh, particularly the lower mainland, Fraser Health uh, and uh, Vancouver Coastal, Uh, Some care homes are simply uh, running out of resources uh, to to man those lines.
3: That's Terry Lake. He's the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, talking about the situation that care homes find themselves in, not only with patients that are catching COVID-19, but the fact that the patients can't have visitors, and as well that a lot of care homes are already short-staffed to begin with. Now, Menno Place Care Home in Abbotsford may have been among the first to kind of try hiring family members, to uh, to fill some of those staffing shortages. We wanted to find out more about the idea and hear how it's going. So joining us now is their CEO, Karen Biggs. Good morning, Karen. Hey, how are you? I am good, thank you. Uh, so tell me, what has the reaction been like when you put that call out there?
1: Well, you know, we were absolutely overwhelmed. Uh, we put the call out at 1 o'clock on, on Saturday, and we've already had 57 applicants. We've already started two, so we've been vetting all the applications and making sure everybody's got qualifications and got the crim checks and, you know, because we're hiring these people as employees.
3: Right. But the side benefit being for these people that not only are they getting a job, they're going to, they're going to be able to see their loved ones now,
1: right? Exactly. But we've like, we've even had family members apply whose person has already passed away. So they there are people just with a relationship with mental place. And how
3: difficult was the situation involving staffing shortages before this, Karen?
1: Well, you know, this is our first outbreak in the nine months, and we have had 16 employees on one unit get sick with COVID, oh, man. Um, 26 residents, and we've just unfortunately had our first death on that unit, um, so it's extremely difficult to recruit, and enhanced cleaning means you're putting four times the number of people in that you normally would in a unit.
3: Right. So, uh, what have what have been some of the rules that you've put into place then for employees?
1: Uh, all the all the same rules uh, as we would. So they they're cohorted in a specific unit. They can't work in other organizations because of the single site rules. Um, you know, they have to wear PPE. All those same rules.
3: Right. Okay. So, the, what kind of positions were you hiring for? Was it just all over the whole place? No, we're
1: just simply hiring for housekeeping and dietary and we've got a new position that we're calling multi-skilled worker that's a fancy term meaning gopher that means people <laughs> that can serve trays open up uh, milk open up juice you know but just basically be hands because we're so short staffed for care aides and nurses and this is a sector issue you know we've been working with the federal and provincial government trying to get people into our sector
3: and where has where is all that effort at right now like are you in the midst of finding more people for that too
1: uh, we are. In fact, I think there's a thousand new employees in the, in the new role that the NDP has uh, put together with the HCAP program. Uh, so we're very, very delighted that we're seeing some progress, but it takes time to train nursing staff and care aides, So some of those positions take a lot longer to fill.
3: Right. Karen, what kind of toll has this taken on the residents there at Menno Place? Like this must be a very difficult time for them.
1: It is a very difficult time on residents and on staff. You know, we've got 700 residents on our campus and we've got 675 staff. It's been a very, very long and difficult nine months uh, and we don't see the the light at the end of the tunnel yet. Um, So, you know, and, and it's been very lonely. It's been very lonely for the residents as they, you know, had very, very few visitors.
3: I can imagine. Okay, so you've already brought some people in to start working. How many of the sixty-seven do you think you might actually be able to hire?
1: It depends how many we're going to need. Um, at this point, we're probably going to hire about ten um, to get started. And uh, if it's really a great success, we may we may need to hire more. But at this point, that's about our target. Wow, it's nice to have
3: that many people to choose from, though, isn't it?
1: It really is. It is thrilling. We've been running ads for the last year looking for housekeeping staff. And we thought, with all the shutdown of the hotels and uh, other operations, that we'd be able to recruit those people. But even when we run ads, we get like 35 applications. And then when we phone them, they say, Well, no, I'm getting served, so I'm not going to bother coming for an interview thing. Really? Mm hmm. Oh, that was very must be, disappointing.
3: Yeah, that'd be very frustrating as well. Now, have you heard from other care homes? Because clearly you've gotten a lot of attention for, for this and this situation, but have you, have you gotten other care homes who maybe would like some advice on tackling this?
1: Uh, yes. Um, other administrators have called me and said, gee, I didn't think about that. Um, and let us know how it works. It sounds like a great idea. And so, yes, absolutely. My colleagues, uh, you know, we're, we're all in this together. We don't compete for staff. We really work hard so that we all have staff.
3: Right. Okay. Tense times there, Karen, though. must be very stressful.
1: It, it, it's very, very stressful. Yeah. Well, yeah. This, Especially that, when you see staff getting sick and residents getting sick uh, every day uh, in this outbreak. And our outbreak only started on the 17th of November. You know, I really feel for care homes that have gone through this, you know, two and three times. It's, it's brutal.
3: Uh, it certainly sounds like it. But listen, Karen, best of luck. I hope this all works out. Uh, I'm positive that it will. Okay, thank you. That's Karen Biggs, the CEO at Menno Place. Uh, What we hope will work out is the fact that she posted some jobs for inside the care home, and they had something like 67 family members of residents apply for those jobs, meaning they could work at the long-term care home And also it gives them an opportunity to spend time with their loved one who was there. That is the big benefit of that, right? What a great idea. It's clearly struck a chord with a lot of people out there. And I'm sure more care homes are thinking, Jesus, maybe we should try this as well, see if it works for them. And if it means that it provides some comfort to the residents there and some relief to the people who are working there, then